From Heterodox Academy, I'm Zach Rausch. Today, we'll explore threats to open inquiry and viewpoint diversity on campus, but from the outside in, from partisan media outlets to external political actors. Threats to open inquiry and viewpoint diversity are not merely matters of dogma or ideological purity. Today's episode addresses the role of partisan media in shaping campus discourse, the tendency for humans to judge far too quickly, and how the language of viewpoint diversity can be hijacked for political gain. Today's blog, Constructing Campus Craziness, was written in response to what happened to Ken Meyer, a professor who was targeted and falsely accused for being, well, you know the script, a conservative-loathing, ideologically motivated, radical left-wing professor. The blog was written by Donald Moynihan in February of 2019. So the bottom line is simply to be an intelligent consumer of debates about speech on campus or in K-12 schools, and to look more broadly at the structure of power that, that gives rise to the development of these sorts of stories. We'll hear more from Donald later. But now, the full story of Professor Ken Meyer. The blog is narrated by Jonathan Todd Ross. Constructing Campus Craziness by Donald Moynihan. Maybe you have heard of it or seen it. You should be aware of it, since it's affecting how college campuses are viewed by the public. It's a branded Fox News segment, Campus Craziness. The segment has some variation. Snowflake students, liberal professors, deplatformed speakers. But the core message is the same. Conservatives face a hostile environment on college campuses. This is the story of how one of those segments came to be. One makes plain the bad-faith nature of certain right-aligned attacks on universities, which simultaneously evoke free speech while shutting down academic freedom. This semester, University of Wisconsin-Madison political science professor Ken Mayer decided to teach a class entitled The American Presidency, or What Do We Know and How Do We Know It? In the course syllabus, while explaining why this was such an extraordinary time to be studying the presidency, Meyer emphasized the highly polarized reactions to President Trump and ticked through some of the extraordinary legal and political challenges that he faces, using language intended to provoke students to think about what the modern-day presidency means and to generate reactions for discussion. There is no such thing as a bad time to study the American presidency. But sometimes, now for instance, are better than others. We are two years into the most, how shall we put it, unconventional presidency in American history, with a president who gleefully flouts the norms of governing and presidential behavior that have structured the office since George Washington. To his supporters, this is not a bug, but a feature, and they rejoice in his contempt for what they insist is a corrupt D.C. establishment. If elites are against it, Trump's supporters are for it. To others, he is a spectacularly unqualified and catastrophically unfit egomaniac who poses an overt threat to the republic. And this was before U.S. intelligence agencies concluded that Russian operatives, with the approval of Putin himself, hacked DNC computers, and carefully leaked embarrassing emails as a way of damaging Clinton, 
all with the goal of helping Trump, before multiple campaign officials pled guilty to lying to the FBI or to other crimes, before federal prosecutors said in a court filing that Michael Cohen was acting at Trump's direction to violate campaign finance laws by making payoffs to multiple women who said they had affairs with Trump in order to buy their silence during the campaign, or that Cohen lied about ongoing efforts during the campaign to build a Trump Tower in Moscow. Other shoes are almost certain to drop, and evidence continues to emerge of ongoing contacts and engagement between Trump campaign officials and Russian intelligence assets and government officials. A student in the class, McKenna Collins, a former Miss Wisconsin whose platform was teaching civility within political discourse to students, posted the syllabus on Facebook. Complaining that a failure to include mention of Trump's accomplishments in these paragraphs prevented a thoughtful dialogue about the president. Her post quickly received hundreds of shares and ended up drawing the attention of the College Fix, who ran a story about McKenna and the syllabus. This drew the attention of Representative Dave Murphy, chair of the Higher Education Committee in the Wisconsin Assembly, who quickly produced and published a harshly critical letter against Dr. Mayer on the basis of this characterization. The college fix then doubled down on the story, reporting on the lawmakers' response to their previous reporting. Breitbart then picked up the story. Within hours, it was on Fox News. All of this happened before he had taught his second class of the semester. The only problem is that their caricature of Mayer, as a radical liberal shutting down the speech of conservative students, is the polar opposite of who he is in real life. Full disclosure, Ken Mayer is a regular co-author and a friend of mine. Additionally, I worked at UW-Madison for 13 years before leaving in 2018. As a result, I can offer some context and insights unavailable to Fox News viewers. For instance, Mayer is about as strong a defender of free speech and fairness as one could wish for on any campus. You don't have to take my word for it. He has a long record of working with a loosely affiliated group of UW-Madison faculty members, the Committee for Academic Freedom and Rights, that fought for free speech on campus since the 1990s, whose work has been praised by FIRE, the National Association of Scholars, and others. When UW-Madison adopted a campus speech code, he was part of a successful effort to repeal it, arguing that such codes are akin to unconstitutional prohibitions on flag burning. He has also encouraged students to understand that offensive speech is part of the price of free speech. Indeed, one of the last times I saw Ken, he reported on bringing a group of students to see a Charles Murray event on campus. Meanwhile, in 2012, Ken criticized his own university for staging a campaign visit by President Obama on the grounds that it could appear to be an endorsement of the candidate. UW-Madison spokesperson Meredith McGlone declared Ken is a popular instructor and award-winning presidential scholar who leaves his political opinions at the classroom door and asks his students to do the same. A faculty organization at the school, Profs, echoed the sentiment, insisting Professor Mayer is a fair professor who is nonetheless willing to speak critically and honestly. 
That is a key element of the Wisconsin idea. Even UW-Madison College Republicans, usually happy to allege widespread liberal bias among faculty, have characterized Mayer as an intellectually honest professor that treats conservatives fairly. Another former colleague described him as pretty much the ideal among moderate conservative intellectuals of what a Paul-Sci professor should be. Academic Freedom and Its Discontents Incidentally, the politician leading the attack against Dr. Mayer also describes himself as a fierce advocate of academic freedom and free speech. His actions suggest otherwise. Just two years ago, after finding another syllabus he disagreed with, Representative Murphy demanded UW-Madison cancel the course in question and fire the lecturer who taught it, or face defunding. If the university stands with this professor, I don't know how the university can expect the taxpayers to stand with UW-Madison. Ultimately, the university did stand by their faculty and have since reintroduced the course. Nonetheless, Murphy vowed that his staff would henceforth screen courses in the humanities to make sure there's legitimate education going on. Although he has no meaningful training in the humanities, social sciences, or education, he seems confident that his judgment should supersede that of professors on what constitutes good pedagogy in these domains. Regarding the American Presidency course, Murphy suggested in his letter that Mayer's syllabus left little to sift and winnow. If that term sounds a tad archaic, it is because it deliberately evokes a touchstone event in the history of Wisconsin higher education. It originates from an 1894 university report that stated, Whatever may be limitations which trammel inquiry elsewhere, we believe that the great state University of Wisconsin should ever encourage that continual and fearless sifting and winnowing by which alone the truth can be found. Sifting and winnowing has since become shorthand for academic freedom and free speech at UW, memorialized in campus lore and governing documents. What Murphy appears to have forgotten was the reason such stirring words were needed in the first place. A conservative Wisconsin politician pressured the university to punish a professor for his progressive views. Murphy bizarrely evoked UW-Madison's history of protecting academic freedom in order to justify his own attack on academic freedom. Murphy sent his letter accusing Mayer of hyperpartisan value judgment to 58 people, including Mayer's chancellor, the president of the UW system, the Board of Regents, as well as to other politicians on the higher education committees. Make no mistake, this was an attempt by an influential politician to selectively police speech he dislikes. Worse, it is part of a continued pattern for Murphy of using state power in ways that inevitably have a chilling effect on what faculty feel able to discuss, in the name of academic freedom, no less. A Rush to Judgment Unfortunately, Murphy is not alone in his hypocrisy on these points. On the same night that he quoted George Orwell during a segment bemoaning what he saw as ill-informed, reactionary, and slanderous attacks on conservative teens from Covington High School, Tucker Carlson devoted a segment to Mayer. 
he presented Mayer's name and photograph to his viewers, labeling an award-winning professor, whose research has been cited in Supreme Court decisions as deeply unimpressive, and concluded by saying, all the dumb kids end up teaching at the University of Wisconsin. For her part, Collins seemed right at home on Carlson's show, skillfully hitting a series of talking points. The political proselytizing is unbelievable. She characterized Mayer as having Trump derangement syndrome and said she was sure that I would be penalized if she dissented from what she assumed were Mayer's views. She called for the dean to get involved if Mayer was going to spew unfounded claims that have turned out to be largely false. Neither she nor Carlson identified any specific claims on the document that were false. All of this from a syllabus. Yet what Collins failed to mention, but other students did, is that in addition to going over the course requirements, etc., Mayer gave his standard stump speech on the opening day of class. He asked students to set aside their partisan identities to be open to new ideas. He emphasized that all opinions are welcome in classroom debate and ideas should be expressed freely. In short, he did exactly what proponents of viewpoint diversity and vigorous debate call for. Indeed, after Collins actually attended a couple lectures, she declared that she was not concerned with the course itself being biased anymore. Unsurprisingly, she was not called back to Fox News to correct the record. The whole affair seems like a variation on a very academic joke. How can we brainwash students when we can't get them to read the syllabus? Here, the student argued that merely reading the syllabus, or her mischaracterization of it, was enough to judge an entire class, and the career and intentions of a professor that she seemed to know little about. Yet, at the end of the day, Collins is a student, and it is to her credit that she was willing to publicly adjust her position after she got a better sense of who Dr. Mayer was. Unfortunately, by that time, her initial reaction had already been uncritically amplified and further exaggerated by right-aligned politicians and media outlets eager to push a particular narrative. Mayer subsequently deleted his Facebook account. His department removed his contact information from his webpage. You can guess what his inbox looks like. Mayer was judged not on his merits as a teacher or his record of encouraging real debate, but because he seemed insufficiently kind to their political leader on a course syllabus. It's the very stereotype of identity politics that many on the right claim to oppose. A Distorted Image all of the parties involved in manufacturing this pseudo-event positioned themselves as advocates for more free speech and political discourse on college campuses. And why not? Representative Murphy got some headlines. Breitbart and College Fix got some clicks. McKenna Collins got to be on a primetime Fox News show. An impressive feat for a young conservative communications major. However, it is critical to bear in mind that each of these actors are themselves committed political partisans. The student is a former intern of Republicans Paul Ryan and Wisconsin Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, and has praised Ivanka Trump's leadership.
Representative Murphy is a Republican politician. The college fix is funded by the DeVos family and other conservatives with one mission in mind, to expose what they see as runaway campus liberalism. Carlson is one of the most influential critics of liberals in America today, on an overtly partisan television network. Indeed, disparaging professors has been especially fertile ground for Carlson. Campus craziness is a recurring section on his show. If College Fix is the minor leagues, Carlson is the majors. And these attacks have been startlingly effective. Surveys show that confidence in universities has plummeted. The change has been so dramatic that it is not likely a result of anything different that universities are doing. Instead, it seems driven by the image Carlson and others are promoting about institutions of higher learning in this highly polarized political moment. To feed that narrative, faculty must be routinely demonized. The principles that free speech depends on, like academic freedom from political interference, must be sacrificed. The truth becomes a casualty. Attacking someone like Mayer, who has an actual record on cultivating lively debate and protecting intrusions on free speech, lays bare the opportunism of the free speech grifters who run this con again and again. With the slightest of effort, they could have found that Mayer was not the caricature they presented. But that would have required basic research and challenging their own biases before rushing towards a conclusion. This proved a bridge too far. Not only does the case exemplify how the campus craziness narrative is created, it also illustrates the limited pushback against that narrative. Even as cases of deplatforming of campus speakers are carefully tracked, Mayer's experience will not be captured in any database. Literally millions saw Mayer falsely portrayed. Relatively few heard the full story. While local news media in Wisconsin followed the case, and it was featured in a short piece in the Chronicle of Higher Education, coverage typically explained competing narratives, rather than pushing back on the false one. The most visible media defense of the professor came from students, in the form of an editorial in a campus newspaper. If Mayer was under real threat of losing his job, we would expect a more vocal response. But should it have to come to that? Countries that are currently remaking campuses into tools of unquestioning political obedience, such as Turkey and Hungary, started by targeting faculty. The quickest route to destroy free speech on campus is to smother the academic freedom of those who work there. They set the tone for how to engage in speech in the classroom, and push the boundaries on what topics can be researched. If we look the other way when academic freedom is attacked, expect it to be attacked more often. Constructing Campus Craziness, narrated by Jonathan Todd Ross. Donald Moynihan is with us now. Can you talk a little bit about why you wrote the blog, and in particular why you wanted to publish it on the Heterodox Academy website? Uh, yeah, I, at the time, was sort of in between 
universities. I had just left University of Wisconsin-Madison where this event had happened. And the subject of the story, a professor there, Ken Meyer, was someone I knew well. Uh, we had done research together. So I, I felt I had partly some connection to the story in that I, I knew the subject quite well, but I also had some deeper sense of background um, about what was happening in Wisconsin that maybe other reporters or, or people covering the story might not have had. Um, and the fact that I had just left, I think, made me feel a little bit more free or willing to write about the case than I might have been if I, if I was still at Wisconsin. Can you tell us more about the targeting and criticism of Professor Meyer? Yeah, and, and so the, the case deals with this professor who talks about Trump and the syllabus and you have a conservative student who, and I think anyone would agree, found language to be unflattering. And she posts something on Facebook and that sort of works its way up to the food chain of a various conservative online media until it gets to the Tucker Carlson show, which is sort of the apex here. And my, I think, big insight or, or argument in the piece was that this ecosystem of conservative media, especially focused on campus, exists, and it exists precisely to generate these sorts of stories. Um, and so the, the story itself was not an accident. Or if you hear this story on Tucker Carlson or on other conservative outlets, it's worth asking why you are reading this story at the venue that you're reading it. And, and so partly, I think the big takeaway is how these claims get constructed, how they're not sort of organic representations of the news, but they're part of a deliberate process that has been, in some ways, created to generate an outcome of outrage. So can you go a little bit deeper into that and talk about some of the background to these kind of sites like College Fix and Tucker Carlson Show and how that uh, system of outrage you're talking about works? So this is something I only became aware of as a professor when I started seeing some colleagues, especially colleagues who worked in the domain of political science or sociology or especially colleagues who might have written about or talked about issues of social justice, racial justice, turn up on these online news sites like College Fix or Campus Reform um, and, and be targeted in a sort of a very personal way where the, the true line to these stories were that here were these out-of-touch, excessively liberal faculty who are trying to brainwash our, our students with their ideas. The funding comes from different sources. There's usually some Koch brother money. In the case of College Fix, the DeVos family has contributed to it. They use students who are on campus, sometimes in classrooms, to report on, on what faculty are doing. And so it's a form of media that has been created with a certain purpose in mind, typically by relatively wealthy conservatives who have a broader agenda and who've invested their money in a variety of ways to try and facilitate that agenda. Um, these media outlets really are constructed to create a certain sort of set of beliefs about how college campuses work. And I think 
they've been somewhat successful in that. And so if you look over time at people's perceptions of college campuses, you see in the last few years, especially around 2015 and 16, some of this messaging really start to stick where uh, members of the public, but especially if you're more conservative, have declining trust in universities as institutions. Now, ultimately, a ton of people aren't going to read College Fix, but it becomes sort of the first bottom layer of this ecosystem where maybe your story, if you're a reporter there, gets picked up by Breitbart, which is what happened in this instance. And then if you're really lucky and you hit the jackpot, you go to the major leagues, which is Fox News, uh, which again is what happened within the space of a day with this particular story. So what's the underlying story that is being portrayed by Fox and the other right-leaning outlets? What the story really shows is that it doesn't matter what the underlying facts were here. No one from College Fix was trying to, to get that part of the story. The story shows this example of sort of cherry-picking examples to fit your primary narrative. And so I do think there's a real cost if you're going to have this media whose intent is not really to present a journalistic account of what's happening, but instead is combining uh, what's essentially opinion as their starting premise and then finding narratives to fit with that opinion. To me, your piece is extremely timely and feels as though it could still it could be written today. Um, and I'm wondering, can you speak to how free speech, academic freedom, viewpoint diversity continue to be politicized? And if and how you see that being played out today, maybe in the context of some of the laws that are attempting to ban the teaching of critical race theory and other related topics? Part of my perspective was formed by being a faculty member at Wisconsin at a time when there was a lot of tension between uh, the state government and the campus. Uh, and so, you know, there was also an attempt to uh, reduce tenure protections for faculty as well as defunding of a reasonable chunk of the campus budget. And so, to some degree, faculty might have felt a little bit paranoid about what it was the state was trying to do at that point in time. Now, in retrospect, I think. What was happening in Wisconsin was sort of a forerunner for a lot of things that we see happening elsewhere today. Um, and my perspective is that the, the common theme here is the idea of removing professional autonomy, um, whether it's K-12 teachers or faculty that we're talking about, but basically taking away um, their ability to manage and control the classrooms um, and evaluating them, holding them accountable to professional standards and replacing that instead with a form of political accountability where you're instead giving outside actors, including groups who have strong political views, controlling power over how the classroom is organized and how faculty are, are treated. Um, and so one interesting point about the story is that afterwards, the state politician 
who had looked at what had happened and based on this Facebook post that the student had posted, had emailed 60 people on college campus, including the professor's immediate superiors. And, and this is the person who's chair of um, higher education in the, the Wisconsin Assembly, was sort of asked, you know, in retrospect, do you have anything you did wrong here? And his response was no. Um, you know, it's it's bad if the professor got detritus, but uh, they're in the public eye, so you need to put your big boy pants on. And I think that that's that really speaks to the idea that we're turning teachers and faculty into political actors. And that's not really why people signed up to become a professor, or a teacher. So what about the outcry over the teaching of critical race theory? Fox News has devoted lots of programming to this and has mentioned it a ton of times. They'll bring on concerned parents who will turn out to be Republican Party operatives who work in the Beltway. But ultimately, if you keep hitting that message, you'll convince enough people and enough parents that it's true. Um, what I think is becoming more dangerous about this is the extent to which these stories are no longer one-offs, but are part, a central part of a political movement. What concerns me is that if you have a political party that makes this a central theme, then inevitably there are going to be some consequences for how speech is developed on campus and in places where you're where you don't have strong first amendment protections in particular uh, that's probably going to weaken uh, discussion of, of speech on campus um, in in venues like local school board elections you're going to have these single-issue candidates who are not really interested in education per se as much as they're against certain types of discussions of, of race or critical race theory in particular. I think that's not healthy for the governance of these institutions. And what is your bottom line? What do you want to make sure that you know our listeners take away from your essay and from what you've been sharing so far? So I, th I think the big takeaway is why is the story that you're reading about campus put in front of you? What was the food chain that got it to that place? What were the broader structural forces that made it a piece of media that you consumed? Is it representative of what's really going on? Um, so the bottom line is simply to be an intelligent consumer of debates about speech on campus or in K-12 schools, and to look more broadly at the structure of power that, that gives rise to the development of these sorts of stories. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. Donald Moynihan on Heterodox Out Loud. As always, it's a pleasure to share our essays with you. If you enjoy our podcast, learn more about us at heterodoxacademy.org. It helps us spread the word about the podcast if you subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or other platforms. And please leave us a review. 
Davies Content produces this show. I'm Zach Rausch. Thanks for listening.